welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. In this episode, number 60, we're going to complete the story of Alexander Pierce, the notorious Macquarie Harbour convict, twice turned cannibal escapee. Last episode, we learned the gruesome details of his first escape attempt from Sarah Island with his work gang, and discovered just how difficult traversing the southwest was on foot. Macquarie Harbour really was an extremely remote location. Of course, the really sensational part of Pierce's story was that his group resorted to cannibalism to survive. Pierce just happened to be the last man standing. Luck more than design, I think. He did make it to the edges of the settled districts, but only remained at large for a matter of weeks after recovering from his ordeal before being recaptured. And despite confessing to the violence and horror that had occurred during his escape, the surprising thing was that he was not sent to hang for these crimes. The authorities refused to believe him and simply sent him back to Sarah Island. There he met a younger convict named Thomas Cox, who convinced him to once again abscond from Macquarie Harbour. These were not men to learn from earlier mistakes, it seems, so we left the last episode just as they had decided to try and make a break. If you haven't already listened to episodes 58 and 59, you might like to do that first so that you have the background context for Pierce's story, and then we can conclude with this last episode. And I have another great Aussie podcast recommendation for you at the end, too, so stay tuned for that. Before I begin, my thanks to Sally Yu, and also to Regina M. for making a donation to help support this ad-free and independent show. I certainly appreciate your support. Thanks. Okay then, back to Macquarie Harbour, where Pierce and Cox are about to, optimistically, some may say, make a break for it. I just want to once again give my listeners a warning. I'm sorry about the spoiler, but this episode will once again contain some gruesome descriptions of murder and dismemberment, so will not be a suitable one to listen to in the company of the kiddies, or indeed for anyone with a delicate constitution. So do be mindful of that again today. For the rest of us, let's get stuck in. As Pierce may well have said to himself. <laughs> in Pierce's first escape attempt from Macquarie, he and his work group intended to take a boat and to raid a supply depot to get the food and other supplies that they would need. But when plans went awry and they couldn't collect the food or use the boat, they made the fateful decision to travel overland instead. The demanding environment made for a very slow and difficult progress, and as they began to starve, members of the group decided cannibalism would be the only option for some of them to survive. Despite making it through to the settled districts, Pierce was clearly traumatised by the ordeal, probably by the violence that ensued, but also by the sheer exhaustion and effort that was required to make their way across the wilderness areas of southwestern Tasmania. It seemed he never wanted to experience such deprivation and inhospitable environments again. But, you know, never say never. <laughs> Recalling from the last episode... Initially, Pierce refused to join Cox in his escape attempt, as he just did not want to face those conditions again. But a few things conspired to change his mind. 
Young Cox had already managed to gather some essential equipment, including fishing hooks and line, tinder and other gear that they would need to feed themselves. And then, after having his shirt stolen, Pierce was probably about to face fifty lashes punishment for his carelessness. Now, the trauma of an escape attempt was weighed against the punishment that would be coming his way at the hands of the authorities anyway. Absconding from the penal station became a more attractive prospect. Cox and Pierce's work gang was once again operating in the Kelly Basin area, under Overseer Loggins. This time, Pierce thought to head north, and then over to the coast, making their way to Launceston or to Port Dalrymple avoiding the gruelling task of crossing the rugged western tiers to Hobart in the east. They gathered the gear they would need, and when the opportunity arose, they took off into the bush, heading northwards, hugging the harbour edge. As soon as they moved far enough out of earshot, Pierce used his axe to buckle the ankle chain, allowing him to slip it off with some difficulty. Collins records that Pierce took several hours to walk normally again, having acclimatised to the changed gait that the heavy shackles forced in the weeks that he'd been back at Macquarie. And then he and Cox continued through the forest for a couple of days, knowing that men would be out scouting for them around the harbour. On the third day, they risked moving back towards the water's edge, now they were further north, making the going easier. On the fifth day, they had made it towards the northern end of the harbour, to King River, not too far away from today's Strawn. And, having noted that the soldiers were in the area, they laid low there for several days, though they did manage to pilfer some supplies from the men that were out hunting in the area. Now, it's interesting to me that Cox felt confident to travel with Pierce at all, given that he knew about his previous cannibalism. Indeed, he was so fascinated by the experience Pierce had undergone that he even asked him what human flesh had tasted like. <laughs> now, I'd be advising if he answered, yum, Cox better be ready to run. But we all know the anticipated answer to that question, don't we? It tastes like pork. <laughs> I can only imagine he checked to ensure that Pierce was not a fan of pork before heading into the wilderness with him, but I'm not sure if that happened... I'm feeling rather anxious already on his behalf. The fishing equipment might have helped his confidence, and they did catch a few fish, though despite not yet being exposed to a sushi bar, they ate them raw, given that the soldiers were in the area hunting for them, as they didn't want to light a fire. They still had some other food too, including some salt pork and bread that they'd stolen from a nearby camp, so these early days were progressing reasonably well. But even though it was approaching summer at this time, it must have been cold in the evenings. They had not had to climb into the mountains like Pierce had done the first time, but all the same, after nine days out, it must have been becoming uncomfortable and trying, particularly without a fire, as they'd been subject to cold rain again in the previous days. Fortunately, the authorities seemed to give up the search around this time, and Pierce felt ready to move on. They would start a fire, dry out their clothes overnight, eat and warm up, and then cross the river in the morning on their way to Liberty. But Cox soon began suggesting they head inland to the east instead, the very terrain that Pierce was adamant they should avoid. It turns out that Cox could not swim. The King River was a terrifying obstacle for him, so any camaraderie they may have had to this point evaporated. Pierce was furious he'd not shared that information with him before. He would not have undertaken an escape with Cox if he was expected to attempt the mountain crossings again. 
The thick bush around the harbour sides was bad enough. Pierce was livid. Cox was clearly unaware of the level of distress the harrowing first escape had caused Pierce. He could not bring himself to face that terrain again. He was working himself into a fury. Dun, 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 dun. At this point in the horror film, the music would be rising, and you have to wonder if Cox was aware of how dangerous things had got now that Pierce was losing it. Unable to calm him, Cox retreated a little and then began building a fire to cook the fish to add to their pork and bread haul. But sadly, he had underestimated Pierce's rage. Perhaps winding himself up, imagining he was heading out into another ordeal like the previous one, Pierce snapped. Either way, it was not good news for Cox. While he busied himself, distracted with the task of igniting the fire, hoping perhaps the food would placate Pierce, Pierce, channeling Greenhill, took up the axe and violently struck Cox. His later confession recorded it was not a well-aimed blow, and Cox screamed, rolling away, trying to protect his head. Pierce struck him twice more, and still Cox was conscious. Pierce claims he then turned away to swim across the river, but that Cox called him back, begging him to put him out of his misery. Oh, it's just horrifying. Finally, Pierce landed a blow that did kill poor Cox. But now, having done the deed, he did not head back into the water. Instead, he now revved up the fire and turned his attention to dismembering Cox's body. We might ask why. He had food. He had the means of catching more. It may have been this that encouraged people to believe that he was completely addicted to human flesh and could not resist that this may have been his plan all along. I don't know. I think it more likely he just lost the plot here, and the violence he was involved in the last time he was in the wilderness just returned to him. A psychosis, perhaps. I find it hard to believe that he was operating with any rationality at all. Given he was not starving, nor even under much pressure at this point, his behaviour was certainly frenzied and ferociously brutal. He stripped Cox's body, much of his clothing he would wear himself for warmth. Then he began butchering the body, cutting both his hands off and removing his head, which he placed in a tree hollow nearby. Why he did that is unknown. Was it to hide it, or to protect it from carrion-eating creatures, or to put it from his sight so that he would not be haunted by its visage? Very odd. He carved up various parts of the body, and despite having some other food in his possession, he admitted to eating some flesh that night. So maybe that does suggest he had a desire for the taste of human meat after all. He stayed and slept there by the river overnight. How restful his sleep was I don't know, but his actions soon became more curious. The following morning he ate some of the bread, pork and fish, and then gathered up the items that he would need, including wrapping more of Cox's flesh into his makeshift swag and placing one piece of Cox's thigh into his pocket. He made his way across the river and continued further northwest to the top of Macquarie Harbour during that day. He seems to have progressed well physically, but after what might be described as a pretty violent breakdown with Cox, now on his own, he seemed to have continued deteriorating mentally. Possibly he was experiencing some remorse and revulsion for his behaviour in his more lucid moments, or maybe he was just facing the depressing realisation that he was now out there again in the wilderness on his own. 
He may have been concerned about the prospect of hunger once he had consumed the flesh he carried, but it does seem the greater horror for him now was simply being alone. He could not face continuing into the unknown. Bizarrely, after the horrific episode of the day before, he decided to turn around and return towards the penal settlement, where he made himself a hidden camp around Pine Cove Point, and kept watch on the movements around the harbour while he remained there unseen. Whether this proximity to people from afar was going to be enough to help him settle and consider a more viable plan was doubtful. Certainly he was at greater risk of being caught here than in the northern parts of the harbour, and you have to wonder if taking such a risk indicated he really wanted to be caught. He later claimed that his violent outburst and attack and the violence he inflicted on Cox's body had shocked him afterwards. Though he seems to have consumed some human flesh that first night, he claimed when the time came to eat later, he found himself unable to eat Cox's flesh, and he put it back into his pocket. Whatever the level of remorse, he was most certainly horrified by the prospect of remaining alone, and soon, when he saw a schooner on the water nearby, he actually deliberately caused his fire to smoke, knowing that it would attract attention. Only ten days out, he was now willing to give himself up. He would hide the swag and the materials that he'd kept, and just give himself up, saying that Cox had drowned in a river crossing. He'd have to face punishment for the attempted escape, sure, but he need not confess to Cox's murder, and he would once again be amongst people. Soon they did see his smoke, and on investigating, Pierce was recognised. He was brought aboard and placed in leg irons. He told his story about Cox drowning, but he had not been very careful. The Commandant found a lump of human flesh still in his pocket. Dull. He was obviously not thinking straight, and he'd forgotten to dispose of that evidence. The jig was up. At first, Pierce told him it was a piece of Cox, but he'd only brought it back to prove that Cox had died. It was nothing to do with eating him. No, no. Well, it's not him unburdening his conscience so much, then, as an attempt to cover his tracks, isn't it? Now, if Pierce had been a smart man, he might have said that the meat in his pocket was wallaby meat and that Cox had been washed down the river. Sure, that happened. But, you know, obviously no one was going to believe that a known cannibal brought back a lump of human flesh purely as evidence. He was also wearing Cox's clothes, so very sus. And so he was subject to further questioning. When the commandant pressed him about the flesh found in his pocket, he seems to have just broken, and then yielded, at last confessing to doing the deed, saying and I am willing to die for it. But over time, he backpedalled again, becoming less cooperative. Maybe after some recovery, he felt he had a slim chance of getting away with it. However, the following day, they took men out with Pierce to find and recover Cox's body. Now the extent of his barbarity would be witnessed for the first time. They were all shocked and appalled at the violence indicated at the scene, and the evidence later presented at court further illustrated the savagery of his behaviour. And I'll quote from the extract Collins included in his book of the report of the shocking state of Cox's body as they found it. Quote, the head was away, the hands cut off, the bowels were torn out, and the greater part of his breech and thighs were gone, as were the calf of his legs and the fleshy parts of his arms, unquote. It seems more gruesome and frenzied than it might have needed to be to simply access some flesh to eat. 
They did recover Cox's head and also found the knife and the axe used, but Cox's hands were not located, either where he was killed or where they had picked Pierce up. But the remains they did find were brought back to Sarah Island. Pierce was returned again to the Commandant to undergo a formal interview, which was to be recorded and sent to the authorities in Hobart. Certainly it became clear to everyone who was aware of his first escape attempt that the story he had told them then, considered fanciful by the authorities, was in fact a pretty truthful account of murder and cannibalism amongst the group. Despite Pierce declaring he was not personally involved in the murders himself on that earlier attempt, except for Greenhills at the end, a self-defence killing of sorts under the circumstances. Following his escape with Cox, it was clear that Pierce was most unquestionably capable of the most appalling violence and debauchery. The authorities now knew he should never have been returned to Sarah Island after that first confession, but should have stood trial to hang for Greenhill's death at least, particularly since he had confessed to that. Pierce would need to be tried this time, and no doubt the case would draw huge public interest, being so gruesome and sensational. True crime has always been attractive titillation, apparently. One of the most puzzling things, which helped to paint Pierce as a real monster, with a bloodlust for human flesh, was the knowledge that during that second escape attempt he did have access to some other food, the pork, bread and fish, and still he chose to murder, butcher, and indeed eat parts of cocks. The implication was, having tasted human flesh on his first foray, he was now mad for the stuff. Pierce's claim to have killed cocks because of their violent quarrel, and his panic about not being able to cross the river, was downplayed, while his testimony that he was shocked and appalled by his own inhuman conduct, indeed surprised by the violence he'd been capable of, his mental state and his horror at having to head inland again was not really considered as any motive for his behaviour. It was hard to think of him as anything but a crazed monster with an urgent bloodlust given the mutilated state of Cox's body. One paper described his story as, quote, a thrilling tale of almost incredible barbarity, unquote. The people of Hobart, and far further afield actually, couldn't get enough of this sensational story. And here we are, recounting it again today. We're drawn to these grisly tales. His trial took place in Hobart in June 1824, before Judge Pedder. Pierce was charged with, quote, the murder of a fellow prisoner named Thomas Cox at or near the King River in the month of November last, unquote. Interestingly, Pierce pleaded not guilty though he had, in some interviews, including that with Cuthbertson at Sarah Island, already admitted to one murder, and he seems to have had no defence lawyer to assist his cause either. His previous admissions of cannibalism to Knopwood after the first escape were also well known by the time he came to trial. He had form, so there was little likelihood that he'd get off. Still, give it a go with the not guilty. <laughs> Why not? Certainly the jury was asked to discard any thoughts of his previous actions and focus only on the charges at hand, but he was exceedingly optimistic to think that he had any chance, surely. Cannibalism was both sensational and horrifying, but also barely believable of a white man, apparently. As Collins put it, reflecting on the racism of that time, quote, it was presumed that Europeans could not possibly be guilty of such cannibalistic deeds. 
You might occasionally expect to encounter man-eating among the non-white races, although the especially well-informed appeared less surprised that if any European did indulge in such a practice, it would be an Irishman. <laughs> Apparently they had forgotten about the Englishman Robert Greenhill and the Scotsman John Mather, unquote. <laughs> Yes, it's always them and not us, isn't it? But of course this time there was evidence. Cox's body, or rather what was left of it, to confirm Pierce's admissions. And in the end, despite pleading not guilty, he didn't seem to actually make any case to save himself. Unsurprisingly, he was found guilty of murder and was sentenced to death by hanging, and, quote, afterwards your body to be delivered over to the surgeons for dissection, unquote. Collins notes that, quote, dissection was a humiliation reserved for the worst murderers and was not common even in 19th century Van Diemen's Land, unquote. It was the worst fate for a Christian because dissection was said to preclude bodily resurrection on Judgment Day. I'm not sure, but in doing the crime that brought on the death sentence and dissection, wouldn't that already have precluded resurrection for Pierce anyway, seeing as he'd likely be burning in hell for his deeds? Oh dear. Now, in this era, the pseudoscience of phrenology was taking off. The close investigations of skull shape was thought by some to be instructive in identifying the criminal types, the violent offenders, and the poorer human specimens. But of course it proved to be no kind of science, nor any use at all in defining human behaviour, class, or race. But after his execution and dissection, Pierce's notorious skull was passed around for study for some time eventually making its way to the collections at the University of Pennsylvania's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, where it is presumably still held today. Pierce's confessions were formally recorded several times, details not always matching in each version, but the last versions were recorded by his jailer, John Bisdy, and his priest, Roman Catholic chaplain Connolly, as he approached his final days. Connolly happened to hail from the same area in Ireland as Pierce, so that might have provided an element of comfort for him, and once again Pierce was able to reel off another confession, this time in his native Irish language, in the hope that his deeds might be forgiven and absolution given. But he was to meet his end on July 19, 1824, in Hobart. The hanging was to take place in front of many other convicts, brought in to witness his end, and be warned should they not reform. Connolly, speaking on Pierce's behalf, confirmed that Pierce had publicly admitted his guilt, and the details of the confession he gave the priest were read to the crowd. Connolly then noted that Pierce hoped they would all pray for him, and that God would have mercy upon him. He had a moment more for private prayer with Connolly, before the trapdoor was released and he was executed at 9am. Pierce's body was laid out and sketches were made of his head, and I've put a couple of those images on the webpage. He was then removed to the hospital to await his final fate. After the various post-mortem investigations were made, the bodily remains would have been buried, but the dissection assistant, one Henry Crockett, actually removed the skull and took it home, perhaps intending to sell it. Collins writes that after some considerable time he did sell it to an agent who collected for the American phrenologists, and this is how it made its way to Dr. Samuel George in Philadelphia. In 1853, the doctor passed his collection on, and many specimens, including Pierce's, were taken into the university collection. 
While the substantial parts of Pierce's story remained the same, there was some variance in the details he told, and had recorded each time, so we cannot be sure which, if any, were entirely honest and true accounts of what actually happened. One can imagine that even in confessing, Pierce would have wanted to show himself in the best possible light. He always seems to have been conveniently away from the scene for all the earlier murders, and certainly did not admit to wielding the axe himself until he had to kill Greenhill to ensure that he was the last man standing during that first escape. Collins suggests it would have actually been unlikely for Greenhill to have sent Pierce and others to Gatherwood while he murdered their next victim, given that he'd seemed very keen in the beginning that they all partake in the crimes and be equally culpable. Further adding confusion to identifying the truth, it seems that several of those clerks recording his confessions may have added their own embellishments, moralizations, and dubious dialogue to the copies probably with an eye to publishing the details later and making them more attractive to contemporary readers. So, even with the original documents that remain, we must treat the contents with some scepticism. Remember, after Brown and Kennelly left the group and returned to Macquarie Harbour, we only have Pierce's word to go on about what happened out there, for his first escape attempt anyway. But the general consensus seems to be, apart from probably downplaying his part in the violence, and with him displaying some level of psychological distress and the desire to unburden himself somewhat, much of what he disclosed is likely to have been true, despite the authorities dismissing it as fanciful. With his second attempt, there was at least some evidence in the remains found at the scene of Cox's murder and dismemberment, so it was much clearer just how culpable Pierce had been. So, that was the end of Pierce and his adventures, but it didn't stop other desperate men who attempted escape, both before and after him. Most did not survive their ordeals, but there were a few whose success ensured that they would be remembered, such as Matthew Brady. Brady was quite the difficult customer. According to Wiki, he endured 350 lashes while in Sydney before they decided there was no hope of redeeming his behaviour and shipped him south to Macquarie Harbour in 1823. In June of the following year, he and a number of fellow prisoners managed to abscond in a whaleboat, sailing around the south coast and making their way into the Derwent River. Brady then spent the next two years at large, bush-ranging around the fringes of the settled areas with large numbers of other escaped convicts, becoming a formidable and extremely disruptive gang for the settlers and the authorities. Described as a gentleman bushranger for his insistence on civility towards the women they encountered, he was eventually shopped by one of his cronies and captured, being put to the gallows in 1826. Mark Jeffries was another who took to the bush with a number of fellow convicts, and, like Pierce, he also murdered and ate his companions in his overland escape. He seems to have been overall a nastier piece of work than Pierce, though, both in his previous and post-escape life. He later joined Brady's bush-ranging gang, but was expelled by Brady for molesting women. He was too awful even for a notorious gang of outlaws. Jeffries was caught and executed in Hobart in 1826. A more interesting escape survivor was James Goodwin, who took off with Thomas Connolly in 1828. They were part of a logging party who were staying out on the edge of the harbour rather than being returned daily to Sarah Island. 
so they had access to the bulk camp provisions, which they squirreled away while they built a rough canoe from hollowing out a pine log. They used the craft to head upriver until they reached unpassable falls, and then they took to the bush and made for the east. It seems they were probably the first white men to pass through the Lake St. Clair region, and those who've walked the overland track in Tassie will have some idea of the terrain there. Goodwin apparently had some useful bushcraft skills, and they had stolen a compass along with their other provisions, adding grass roots, berries, mushrooms, and food scavenged from Aboriginal camps to aid survival. Four weeks after their escape, the men split up near the settlement of Os. Goodwin was recaptured, but Connolly was never heard of again. So we might surmise, with the worst of the ordeal behind him, maybe he was one who actually made it off the island, to liberty somehow. Surprisingly, someone in authority could see the value of a man who was able to survive and navigate through these uncharted wilderness areas, and Goodwin was actually pardoned, and then seconded into several surveying expeditions in the region. So he was pretty lucky there, I think. The most audacious attempt, though, may be that of James Porter and his companions. In 1834, Sarah Island was being closed, and the inmates moved to the new place of secondary punishment at Port Arthur. And Porter and his team were the last to leave, being charged with finishing off the last brig to be built there, the Frederick, and packing up the final equipment and kit, all to be taken to Port Arthur, and remember to turn the lights out on the way out. <laughs> when the Frederick was ready to sail, and all the final equipment, provisions and people were loaded on board, they cast off. But Porter and his fellow convicts were able to take control of the vessel, and they offloaded the officers and officials, with a reasonable stash of provisions, before heading out to sea. Porter and his cronies made it to Chile, where he remained at large for a couple of years. But somehow he was recaptured and sent to Norfolk Island to resume his sentence. A literate man, Porter later wrote his autobiography, and the play The Ship That Never Was is based on his escape exploits. In 1848 he again escaped by boat and was never captured. If he survived, he remained at large for the rest of his life. Returning to Pierce's story, though, and thinking about the many men who died out in the Tasmanian wilds, having taken a punt on liberty or death, two ghoulish things in particular puzzled me about what went on during those gruesome episodes, and I'll share my weird thoughts with you here. Given how much meat there is on a man, you know, you butcher a sheep and you're eating that little fella for months, how did the supply from a single man only last days, even if it was the only food they had? It seems like a lot to consume for men who must have had quite shrunken stomachs. I guess in their physical state, carrying extra weight in their swags was difficult, but given the hardships of hunger they had experienced, and the fact that they might be next on the menu, you'd think that they would have absolutely made rationing it to last a priority. Collins, though, points out a limitation to their survival strategy. Quote, the problem with human flesh, especially that of men, is that, while rich in protein, it lacks the carbohydrates needed for energy. Unquote. Aha. So, human flesh, okay for your low-carb diet. Right. Noted. <laughs> the second thing was, how come remains, or bones at least, have so rarely been found. There were a great many escape attempts, and we're assuming most of those were unsuccessful, 
Many men must have perished out there. I know much of the area around Macquarie Harbour remains a wilderness, seldom explored, except by the men of the Tasmanian Hydro, who rarely left any beautiful pristine place untouched in the 20th century. But it's been nearly 200 years. Again, being gruesomely curious, I guess any unsuccessful escapee's body would have remained where it fell, in the generally inaccessible areas they travelled through and expired in. Even today, these mountains and plains are only traversed by barely managed hiking trails and very few vehicle tracks, so it probably makes sense not many remains have been found. But I started to think about the state of any unburied bodies out there and the reasons why discovery would be unlikely, even in places where other people might have travelled in the 200 years since. Tasmania in the 1800s still had its apex predator, the mighty Tasmanian tiger, or thylacine, roaming the country, and it surely would not have turned its nose up at human remains. And of course the Tasmanian devil specialises in eating every last part of carrion it comes across, including the fur and bones. They really clean up. Quolls and other carnivorous creatures of the bush would also have still been in plentiful numbers at the time, and undoubtedly added to the likelihood that any remains were well scattered and probably well consumed. Ah, so that's a grisly thought, isn't it? Apparently discarded leg irons have been found in various places around the harbour. In fact, Collins notes that a surveyor entering the area near the confluence of the Adelaide and Loddon rivers in March of 1832, nearly ten years after the incidents we're recalling, did report finding human remains. Collins suggests the recorded account may point to those being the bones of Thomas Boddenham, the second man killed and eaten by Pierce's group. He also writes that Surveyor General Calder in 1840 found several articles likely to have been from escaped convicts. An old yellow jacket, a pea jacket, a blanket and pair of boots, and some tools and a pot in an area now bucolically named Wombat Glen north of the Loddon Plains. Pierce's group, or the survivors anyway, may have come that way, so again there is a possibility the items may have belonged to Mathers. But they could also have belonged to any one of a number of convicts who tried to make their way out of the Macquarie Harbour Penal Settlement over the years it operated. That the items were placed inside a tree hollow does point more to the items being hidden rather than an unfortunate escapee dropping them and dying where he fell. Apparently Calder made no comment about finding any human remains, though. So that pretty much covers the awful story of Pierce. The area where Pierce's escape story largely takes place is now encompassed by a World Heritage-listed national park, the Franklin Gordon Wild Rivers National Park. Fortunately, the mighty rivers there were saved from oblivion by the aforementioned Tassie Hydro in the early 1980s, by a massive no-dams protest movement, halting the construction of the proposed dams there, which would have drowned the pristine rivers. The movement resulted in the World Heritage listing and the establishment of the Greens Party in the Australian political scene. I'm grateful to all the protesters and certainly very pleased that we can still retain some areas as almost true wilderness in our otherwise built and busy world. These days, the area provides some extreme hikes to challenge wilderness hikers, 
and attempting them does require serious experience, commitment and preparation to navigate this still formidable environment. But just a note, if you are heading into the southwest of Tasmania, my advice is to travel only with vegetarians. I'm just saying. <laughs> For those who are not such committed and perhaps self-punishing hikers, the accessible edges around the park provide various points of access for refreshment and escape and to give visitors a glimpse of the rugged terrain within. Many sites around the Macquarie Harbour have been retained as heritage sites, though the harbour is under some environmental pressure these days. Visitors can easily get access to Sarah Island and the other related convict locations by boat from Strawn. Many fringes around the harbour are places of wild beauty now and not the horror it must have been for those poor men of Pierce's era, though the evocative remains of the prison sites can help you to still imagine that world. My podcast recommendation this time will be of particular interest to those in Sydney and its surrounds, though the content is very interesting even if you're not a Sydney cider. Called Stories from Sydney, Alastair and Jed reflect on an eclectic range of sites and stories related to Sydney and its history one of my favourites being the development of the sewer system. (laughs) Now that's not a sentence you'd be expecting to hear. But if you can make that topic interesting, you know you have a great show. Have a listen. Hello, I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And together we host Stories from Sydney, a podcast where each episode we share an obscure and hopefully fascinating story from the history of the city and its surrounds. In our last season, our stories range from the history of the humble local bolo all the way to the divergent fates of Sydney's glamorous department stores. And from the ceaseless colonial extraction of highly prized red cedar wood to the relentlessly flamboyant exploits of Captain Moonlight. We're sure you'll find something to pique your interest in our back catalogue. So tune in wherever you get your podcasts to Stories from Sydney. As always, I will place a link to their show details on my webpage at theaustralianhistoriespodcast.com.au. I'll also once again recommend Paul Collins' book, Hell's Gates. Excellent if you want more detail on Pierce's story. Bibliographic details are in my reference list on the website. Also, if you've never heard Weddings, Parties, Anything, singing the full version of A Tale They Won't Believe, in the ancient words of the 70s music presenter Molly Meldrum, do yourself a favour and have a listen. It's an energetic, if ghoulish, little number. So, a new topic next time, and I'm working on pinning that down now. Hopefully a single standalone episode, though, you know, I never know till I get writing. Thanks so much for listening. Take care now, and I'll talk to you again soon, looking at a different story from our past. Cheers. Cheers.